This is the City of God podcast, where Christ meets culture. And welcome to the City of God podcast, where we are weekly talking about today's biggest cultural issues, all through the lens of God's infallible word. My name is Rob Pacienza, and as always, joined by my good friend and co-host, John Rabe. Great to see you today. Great to see you, Rob. It's always a pleasure when I get to join you for the podcast here. And uh, I say this all the time, but we've got another terrific one today. Uh, You know, you and I on this program often speak about uh, Christian cultural engagement. In fact, that's really what the program is is about. You know, the the city of God, Christ meets culture. That's that's the whole hub of what we do. And, uh, you know, about the fact that the biblical truth extends into every aspect of life. And so I think today is a good opportunity for us to discuss some of the the foundations for that, why it is that we pursue that, why it is that we find that important to talk about, why we engage the culture, and what's our individual calling from God, both in terms of the culture and in terms of other things that that God has for us. And our guest on today's program is one of those guys that, um, you know, it's it's the fanboy in me starts to come out. He's he's a rock star. He would be embarrassed for me to refer to him as a rock star. But to me, this is like, if you're going to talk about these issues, this is the one person that you want to speak to about them. And we get to have him on the program. Today. Absolutely. And we're talking about uh, the legendary. Um, I say that with all due respect, yeah. because it's 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 true. We're talking about the, the one and only Oz Guinness. And Oz is just one of those individuals that's just fascinating to have a conversation with. And as you said, in the introductory comments, we talk about Christ and culture. We talk about the city of God. And I can't think of a better person to talk about the doctrine of vocation, calling that comes from God, and how that relates to our role mm-hmm. in the culture as Christians in the 21st century. Oz is a social critic. He's a philosopher, theologian, author, and just somebody that has done what I call incredible cultural exegesis, yes. uh, really helping us understand the times and then how to relate to the times in this secular age as a believer in Jesus Christ. And for those who are uh, unfamiliar with the term, exegesis is something that pastors and Bible readers do uh, with the scriptures. It's, it means to draw the meaning out from, to, to, to read what's there and to read it accurately. And so Oz does that not only with the Bible, but he does that, as you point out, with our culture. Because we really need to understand what, what is the age we're living in. Yeah. And, and it's so easy to just look at symptoms. It's so easy to just look at something pops up here. Oh, kids are are, are uh, you know, becoming trans uh, at record levels or, uh, you know, we're losing religious freedom. But it, the, the, the next step is to be able to see the underlying factors at work yes. and all that, the theological reasons that are driving and he's, those he's able to define the times, but then he's also able to explain how we got there. Yeah. And I think that's such an important uh, exercise for the Christian and while why Oz is such a helpful voice in the 21st century because history repeats itself. Uh, we didn't get here overnight. And so he's able to take us back and help us understand how we ar- arrive to what we call a secular age. So we're going to talk about uh, his ministry, uh, some of the books that he's written, particularly the book, The Call, yeah. uh, helping Christians understand that you are called to ministry regardless of your vocation regardless of your stage of life, and then how that relates to 
faithful Christian cultural engagement in the 21st century. If you're not familiar with Oz, I encourage you to Google him, go to his website, uh, go to Amazon to get a collection of his books. He's also the great, great, great grandson of Arthur Guinness, uh, the famed Dublin brewer. Uh, he received uh, his degrees from both the University of London and uh, University of Oxford, which means he's brilliant. Uh, but he has become a good friend of our ministry, uh, Coral Ridge Ministries, and the Institute for Faith and Culture. So without further ado, here is our interview with the one and only Oz Guinness. Well, Oz, thank you so much for joining us on the City of God podcast today. Uh, you're in Fort Lauderdale at the current moment, and you are here because this evening you're going to be talking to a group of Christian leaders and Christian business executives uh, on a talk based on uh, your book, The Call, mm -hmm. uh, where you're really exhorting the church to discover their God-given purpose um, that goes all the way back to the garden. So explain a little bit about what led you to write the book, The Call, and what its central thesis is to the church? Well, The Call for me was liberating, because when I came to understand the biblical notion, it freed me from this idea that to be all out for Jesus, you needed to be a minister or a missionary or an evangelist, but rather the idea that the followers of Jesus, everyone, everywhere, in everything. Now, obviously, the idea goes back to Abraham the first great responder to God's call. And then, of course, climaxes in our Lord, follow me, follow me, follow me. And that call has been the central dynamic and purpose down through Christian history. And when it's strong, take the Reformation, the impact on culture is incredible because it's every follower of Jesus in the spheres of their life, in the whole of their lives, following their call and their most salty and most light-bearing. So it's an incredible liberating truth for individuals and for the church. It, it seems that it's uh, still very much a needed message as well. I, my own experience in, in certain evangelical contexts is that that false idea still persists quite uh, strongly in a lot of corners that, okay, if we have uh, someone who's really devoted to Christ, young men, young women, we're going to push them towards seminary. We're going to push them towards missions work. We're going to push young men towards the pastorate. And while those are, of course, important calls, uh, do you find that there's still uh, that there's still a lot of misunderstanding about what it means to be called by God and that and, and how does it work out for those who are not called into the ministry, who are not called to foreign missions, for instance? Mm -hmm. Now, the, every follower needs to understand we're all different. Mm -hmm. We have different gifts and we have different callings. So if someone is called to the ministry like you, Rob, that is terrific. Sure. And if we're not. That's equally terrific to be a lawyer, a homemaker, a scientist, or a social worker, or whatever it is. Now, the trouble is today, you've got that problem. People have got a misunderstanding of calling. But more recently, too, you have the other trend of people politicizing everything mm. as if politics is our central calling. Whereas, yes, politics is a part of life, but I love the old maxim, the first thing to say about politics is that politics is not the first thing. <laughs> so we all vote and do other things in politics, but the center of our calling is where we live, in our neighborhood, in our workforce, and the gifts we have there. And then spreading out from that, the influence of Christ's calling in the whole of our lives. 
I think that's so important because what you're describing is the priesthood of all believers. Mm -hmm. And this came out of the Reformation. Often we think of uh, the Reformation as the solas. We think of justification by faith, all key doctrines, the rediscovery of the gospel. But it also was uh, Luther and the reformers that were bringing uh, out this idea that everyone is a priest uh, that calls on the name of Jesus Christ, uh, that we are to be salt and light everywhere we go. So it, for pr practical purposes, how should Christian men and women be thinking practically about their work, about their vocation in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Well, first discovering it. In other words, when people are in their teens or certainly by the time they're at college, they should be encouraged to think, who am I? What are my natural gifts? What are my spiritual gifts? And how does that fit the understanding I have of developing career? So that from the very beginning, I met too many people who just chose what their parents wanted them to do or what all their peers were going towards or what was lucrative, you know, in certain generations. No, they should be thinking, who am I? And what does Christ want to do with me? So that the choice of gifts and calling is so important. Mm. But then I think when you're in a career, a lawyer or a politician or a homemaker, as I said, I, I challenge people to map, map out their lives. So we all live somewhere. And then we have neighbors and a community and then our workplace and our workforce. But then different people, say a doctor, his influence touches all his patients. Or a journalist, you know, his influence, her influence touches all the readers. So if we map out the world in which we're living and the, the ripples of our little life, all of us is a little life. Mm -hmm. And then we're saying, does Christ's calling touch every one of those spheres in which my little life touches? If we do that, then we're being faithful. Then we'll be salty and light bearing. It's also clear that uh, one of the things that has sort of unraveled us is that when you're going to think about how God wants to use you, that also implies uh, a, a purpose for your life, a direction that this is heading, a goal in mind. And as you point out in the call, um, you know, we're really sort of the, the first civilization in history that didn't have any clear idea of what the purpose of life is. Everybody has their own answer to that, to that question now. Uh, and it seems to me that that sort of feeds into all these related questions of identity, uh, you know, who am I and who says who I am and so forth. How, uh, how much have we lost there and what do we need to recapture there about uh, the, 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 the teleology of it, the, the, the end to which we're, uh, the, the end to which we're heading as we figure out our, our calling and live mm -hmm. it out? Well, clearly one of the myths and the idolatries of the modern world is the idea of unlimited autonomy. Mm -hmm. Now, that's absurd to start with. We didn't choose to be born. We didn't choose our parents. We didn't choose our birthday. Many of the basic things of life we didn't choose and were influenced by all sorts of things around us. And the fact is none of us can be ourselves by ourselves. And so calling is the ultimate coming in of the Lord's purpose because far more than we know ourselves, far more than our parents know us or our best friends know us, the Lord knows us. So calling is not just be who you are, it's become whom you can become. Mm. 
So you might come to Christ at 20 and live another 70 years. Only the Lord knows what that will mean over those 70 years. So trusting him, you're unfolding purposes that are far beyond any ideas you have at 20 and 30. Excellent. So we've got to say no to this idea of unlimited autonomy. Mm -hmm. No. We will be ourselves mostly when we follow the call and we become who we are and we become whom he wants us to become. Amen. As part of our faithfulness, right, you often talk about this, this is a time for faithfulness, uh, but part of us being faithful is really understanding the cultural moment, really understand if we are truly called to be salt and light, regardless of vocation, regardless of our stage of life. If we follow Jesus Christ, we are called to be faithful. But part of that faithfulness and the effectiveness of our calling is really understanding what are we walking into? Do we really understand this cultural moment? It's been said that um, this we're living in a secular age. It's been said that we're living in a, in a post-Christian world. Um, how would you describe and define the current age in which we find ourselves in. Well, very important that people do it first. You think of the men of David who are skilled in reading the signs of the times to know what Israel should do. Or the wonderful tribute of Paul to King David in Acts 13. David, after he'd served God's purpose in his generation, fell asleep. I love that verse. In other words, To understand God's purpose, we need to understand our generation and how our small part fits into it in a bigger way. And that's where a lot of Christians don't. They just take on the current social media view, whatever it is, rather than thinking it through to themselves. But I would argue, well, put it this way, understand two big ways I get into it. One is Western and the other is American. In terms of the West, we're at a civilizational moment. The West is the child of the gospel. But there's a moment in every civilization, the 10 big ones have gone before us, when the civilization loses touch with its inspiration. And when that happens, there are only three broad options, renewal, replacement, or decline. And obviously, all the previous civilizations are either in ruins or museums or history books. They declined. The West is at that point today. Most of the West has rejected the Jewish and Christian faiths, the biblical faiths that made the West. Can they be renewed? Yes. Are they being replaced by a secularism? No. And you see other ideologies, Marxism, the sexual revolution, and so on, bidding to come in. But they are not only against us Christians, they are against the West And that's the radical point where we are today. So for me, that's one way in. If we look at America, I'd put it differently. The American crisis is a tale of two revolutions. Just as Paul says to the Galatians, who bewitched you? You're following another gospel. You came to Christ through the gospel of grace, and you're now following a gospel of works. And I would say to Americans, who's bewitched you? You came to freedom and revolution through a revolution that was rooted in the scripture, largely, sadly not fully, because of slavery. And you're now following a revolution rooted in the Enlightenment that comes down from the French Revolution. Absolutely disastrous. So wokeism and all these things are part of that. 
But Americans need to understand where we are in order to respond well Christianly. And what are some of those fundamental differences? Because I, I think it's the state of education today that, that a lot of this has been lost. Uh, the 1700s may as well be, uh, you know, the 1700 BC to, to most young people today. What are some of those fundamental differences that distinguish the, the French Revolution of 1789 from the American so-called revolution, which all the people involved at the time recognized were fundamentally different different characters, but almost no one seems to recognize now. No. Well, obviously, they had different sources. Mm. The American, mostly the Bible. The French, the Enlightenment. They had different views of humanity. The American Revolution is very realistic. Separation of powers, checks and balances. James Madison, taught by John Witherspoon. Why? Sin mm -hmm. and the potential for the abuse of power. The French Revolution, utopian. And you can go on down the line. Crucial differences are point after point. Currently, the biggest difference is justice. Mm. Both sides agree on injustice. But the French Revolution, there's no truth, so you only have power. So you set up a conflict of powers to overcome the status quo. And as the Romans understood well, if you have no truth and only power, you can only have peace if you have a power so powerful it can put down every other power. Mm -hmm. In other words, despotism. Mm. Whereas in the biblical view, if you read the prophets or our Lord himself or the great reformers like William Wilberforce, you address truth to power and call for repentance and an about turn and then forgiveness and a freeing of the past and a freeing up of a second chance in the future and go on down the line. The biblical differences, equally passionate about injustice, but a constructive, positive view, as the rabbis put it. Who is a hero? Someone who wins, conquers his enemy? No, someone who can turn his enemy into a friend. Mm. And that's what the gospel does. Oz, you talk a lot about these two revolutions, 1776, 1789. You also talk about uh, the Russian Revolution. You talk about the Chinese Revolution. And in many ways, our audience looks and goes, but these revolutions are a thing of the past. Mm -hmm. Why are we talking about them today? We're talking about 1776 and 1789, and even uh, the Soviet Union has been defeated. Can't we just move on? Uh, but you really make the case that unless we really understand our history and where we've come from globally and in particularly in the West, it's uh, doomed to repeat itself again. What, what relevance does it have to what we're experiencing in the 21st century? Well, put it this way. The French Revolution only lasted 10 years in France. Over. Then came Napoleon, a dictator. But the lava flow of the volcanic explosion has flowed out ever since. And the two main lava flows that we're dealing with, the first was classical Marxism or communism. 19th century burst out in the Russian Revolution, the Chinese Revolution in the 20th century. But that's not what we're facing. We're facing another lava flow, cultural Marxism or neo-Marxism. And while we've defeated communism in terms of the Soviet Union, we are now at the point where more and more of our institutions are defeated by cultural Marxism, call it wokeism, call it the radical left, call it what you like. You know, my parents were in China during the Long March. 
one of my dad's friends was actually on the Long March, captured by Mao Zedong. I may tell the story tonight. But in the 60s, the radicals from the cultural Marxist left, they said, we need a Long March. 1968 was an incredible year for activism. A hundred American cities ablaze and Martin Luther King and Senator Kennedy assassinated. But the radicals knew they wouldn't win in the streets. They needed a long march, a detour through the colleges and universities, win them first, then the press and the media, then the Hollywood industry, culture, entertainment. Now you can see we're obviously 50 years after that call for the long march. You think of the protests about Hamas or the three presidents who were so disgraceful in Congress. You can see the cultural left, the inroads are very, very profound. And so education has gone. And even now you have woke business and you have woke military. And tragically, you have woke churches. It seems to me that one of the, the the manifestations that you have of this divide between the the impetus for the French Revolution and the impetus for the American Revolution that still plays out today and, and perhaps even more so is the, the difference of the, the idea of rights. You know, everyone talks about what our rights are, and that was a, a key issue, of course, at the founding. But the founding, they were God-given rights. And um, now rights are often talked about in terms of I have a right to health care, I have a right to housing, a right that actually requires something either be provided or taken from someone else in, for, in order for me to have it. Um, that's the idea of rights that we see underlying the more, the more socialistic systems. Um, and, and at the bottom of it is this idea that, well, I have the right to yeah, to take from you what I think uh, is just for me. Uh, what's the what are the implications of all that? And, and and what's a what's a true view of rights as opposed to this 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 sort of expansive? I have a right to high speed internet that that we that we seem to have adopted in mm -hmm. more recent decades. Well, rights were under God. Now, people made in the image of God. We had a responsibility to treat them that way, and they had a right to be treated that way. It was under God and a God-given right that was recognized. But of course, in the radical left, there's no God and there's no truth. So what we call rights today are actually just personal demands to, we look to the government to give us. And mm -hmm. if people have a pressure group strong enough to make their personal demands politically powerful, then you can have the right given by the government, mm. but they can be taken away by the government and they're a very, very different thing. And you have a chaos of rights today. So we're in a world of inflated rights, everyone calling everything they want a right. And I think we're at a place very close to the tulip mania in 17th century Holland or the South Sea bubble and things like that. In other words, a grand pyramid scheme like a Ponzi scheme of rights. You can get away with it for so long, <laughs> but the inflation of rights will undermine the whole business. Mm. Oz, you, you, you talk about uh, Marxism and now cultural Marxism giving rise to 
what you call the poisonous mix of the three eyes, injustice, inequality, and ideology. Now, on the surface, you go, well, we as Christians should be fighting against those things as well. But describe what you mean by the poisonous mix that has come about because of Marxism and cultural Marxism. Well, if you look at the history of the left, classical Marxism or cultural Marxism, you can put the verdict very bluntly. Their revolutions never succeed. Their oppressions never end, and the promises about the future they make never arrive. <laughs> now, that's blunt, but are there any exceptions to that? No. no. <laughs> so it appeals to people because there are injustices, and while there are, in other words, unaddressed evils are like a, a minefield, and citizens can stumble on a mine and set it off. And, of course, radicals want to set them off anyway. So we've got to recognize there are evils, there are injustices, and if unaddressed, they will play into the hands of the left, but the left is no solution. Only the scripture gives you a radical solution. Mm. Now, the trouble is, take, say, the cross, the most radical solution of all, but it's become personal and spiritual to many Americans. Is there any equivalent of, say, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which was for the nation? Yom Kippur was instituted because of the scandal of the golden calf. The nation needed atoning. Mm -hmm. Now, does America have things that need atoning? Or is it just purely personal and spiritual? Mm -hmm. we, we've made so many of these truths, calling earlier, the cross now, We've made them personal, individualistic, and they've lost their huge cultural relevance. I think that we should have a day in the next 10 years, I'd like to see it sooner, a day of national repentance and rededication and atonement. Something that, by the way, was very common in the earlier days of our nation and uh, presidential proclamations and so forth for, for exactly such days, uh, including days of repentance. So uh, Rob and I are both churchmen, and, and so we have particular concerns about congregations and about how the church is involved in all of this. And I think you're beginning to touch on it here, but what do you, and I, I know this is a broad question, but what do you see as perhaps the church's shortcomings in addressing these sorts of things over the past few decades? And what are the solutions? What do we as the church, what do we as church leaders particularly need to be doing to try to straighten out what's been undone? That's a huge, yeah, it's a, large, a big question. I know. Take any part of that question. you like. <laughs> I, I would say a lot of our churches are weak because they're worldly. Mm. And if you just think of the movement, say, in evangelicalism, well, we know the Protestant mainline. It's sidelined. It's lost the plot. Yes. And it, it's committing institutional and cultural and spiritual suicide. And the buildings have but emptied out. I, yeah. I'm a churchman, too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but I'm an unashamed evangelical. You know, in parts of the country, people are ashamed of being evangelical. It's now toxic and political. No, no. To be evangelical is to be a person of the good news, like the prophecies of Isaiah, or our Lord's announcement of the kingdom. I'm an unashamed evangelical. Amen. And I believe it's even deeper than the notion of Catholic universality or orthodox, because it's the very heart of our Lord's message of the good news of liberation. So I'm an unashamed evangelical. But ever since we became popular, the born-again movement, 
Chuck Colson, Jimmy Carter, and so on. You can see incredible amount of worldliness creeping in. Since seeker-sensitive, mm-hmm. and people followed a lot of the ideas of the world, brought them into the church. And you go on down the line and see, we've got to renounce these. We've got to be faithful to being who we are, people of the word, mm. people of the gospel. Now, not the gospel only, no, because it's good news for the whole of life. Sure. But we've got to get the first things first. And remove that sheen of entertainment as oh, as worship, which actually takes us out of worship and takes us into a much more superficial mode of being, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, as final question, you have said in this cultural moment, will the watching world witness a new birth of American freedom? What did you mean by that? And why is that so critical? Well, I believe we're talking about faith and we're talking about freedom in a culture like America. You have the possibility always of renewal. So that's not solid in the secular world, to put it mildly, because their views of determinism, which are rather like the ancient views of hate, uh, fate. But we know from the scriptures the possibility of repentance. Freedom means the freedom to repent and the freedom to be restored and renewed and to start again. And we need it again and again. So thank God for the Hezekiahs. For the Ezra's, the Nehemiah's, the John Wesley's, the George Whitfield's, all these great reformers who've led renewal in their generations. So that's what we need today. Will we see it? Well, only the Lord knows. I think an awakening, a revival is a sovereign work of his spirit. My, my great grandfather at the grand old age of 23 was the lead speaker in the Irish revival of 1859. Mm. And we have records of crowds of 25,000, 30,000. And he would stand on the back of a carriage, no microphones, and preach. And thousands would come to the Lord under the conviction of the Spirit Mm. as the Spirit fell. And in that part of Ireland the next year, there was one recorded crime. In other words, the (laughs) revival was not just spiritual. Spiritual profound conviction led to ethical change of life. Millions of pounds worth of goods was restored to Mm. factories where it had been stolen and so on. The ethical implications were enormous. That's the sort of thing I'd love to see in terms of the church. But equally, we need a revival of an understanding. What is the American Republic about? What does ordered freedom mean? And uh, I think it's quite possible. But the big missing element now is leadership. Yes. Lincoln defined the world of challenges in the 1850s and made the choice or set out the choice at a great cost. No one's doing that today. That's our prayer for a Lincoln-like leader. And that's a great way to end this conversation. Uh, Oz Guinness, it is a true honor to have you on the City of God podcast. I think I speak for John. Uh, We have many (laughs) incredible guests uh, on this podcast, but you are uh, one uh, thought leader and individual in this cultural moment that we hold in high esteem. I became a Christian when I was 14 years of age. When I was 16, I received one of your books, Fit Bodies, Fat Minds. And what I was 
blown away by, and it really helped shape my calling to ministry and understanding the importance of uh, bringing a reasonable and rational and biblically thorough answer to our culture. Uh, God you, has used you in a tremendous way, not only around the globe, uh, but in my life and in our lives as well, and a true privilege uh, to have this conversation today. Well, thank you. My privilege to be with you. What an amazing interview today with Oz Guinness. We pray that you thoroughly enjoyed uh, this episode. Uh, if you were encouraged by it, inspired, informed, we pray that you would pass along this episode to family and friends as we together seek what it means to faithfully engage culture all through the lens of God's infallible word. Uh, we pray that we see you back next time on The City of God. The City of God podcast is produced by Coral Ridge Ministries and made in partnership with the Institute for Faith and Culture. Visit us at cityofgodpodcast.com to access all of our previous episodes. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, or anywhere you get podcasts. A full video version of this podcast is available on YouTube. This is the City of God Podcast, where Christ meets culture.